Welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi, guys. Hi, Simon. Hey, Simon. On today's show, we are looking at NASA during the Cold War and its public perception during this time. And to help us, I'm delighted to say that we are joined today by Dr. Brian Odom, NASA's acting chief historian. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you, Simon. Before we get into the main topic of today's show, uh, Brian, I was just hoping you could very quickly tell us about your work at NASA and sort of the, the role of the history department there. Yeah, you got it. It's it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. You know, the history program at uh, NASA, our job really is to capture the history of the agency as it's, you know, as it's being made to look back into the past and find out if there's anything that, you know, would be helpful to know more about to help the agency with its missions, both, you know, human exploration and scientific discovery, uh, and then communicate that to the public. So we do that through a number of different ways, whether that's, you know, it, as simple as social media, uh, more online lines of research and writing, uh, and, and pr- any programs that we put together, uh, participating in, in, in great opportunities like this. Uh, so that's that's what we do. Uh, it's uh, it, it's always interesting. Uh, the work of the agency, as you as you can imagine, uh, it's it's all it's always very exciting. It's always very diverse. There's so much there's so much history there. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you're if you're bored as a historian working at NASA, you you have to put that on yourself. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's get into uh, the, the main topic then. So um, we're we're going to be covering sort of from the 50s onwards and sort of the late 50s, obviously. The birth of NASA, so I'm sure you know, Brian. Uh, could you just tell us about the the, the American um, sort of view of space exploration in in, in the late fifties and fifties in general, and how that changed once um, once Sputnik happened? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Really, it just depends on on, on who you're talking about there. But I guess just to speak kind of generally, mm-hmm. uh, most people probably in the 1950s assumed that. Uh, you know, humans, humans flying into space was probably still something of, uh, you know, science fiction. It was still, it was something that humanity had always really talked about, you know, going to space and, and being an interplanetary species. But that was sort of the, you know, the H.G. Wells uh, uh, version of history uh, or version of, you know, just uh, what was going to happen there. But I think one of the things that we often forget about is the impact that, you know, World War II really did have on, on, on humanity is from a standpoint of what technology could do. I could do great things, but as, as we saw in World War II, it could do horrible things. And, you know, the experience of the Manhattan Project, the, the project that produced the atomic bomb, uh, that was something that that really, you know, uh, really got people's attention that, that, that the possibilities of what what the application of, of research and, and fundamental research uh, and, 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 and combined with, you know, engineering and, and with, phys- with, you know, uh, just could make great strides forward. So I think the, the public really was, uh, you know, it, it was there would always been a, you know, the public had been primed to understand these things. But I think in the 1950s, they really saw them as as fictional. But you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there 1957 uh, with the with the launch of Sputnik as part of that International Geophysical Year that got people's attentions for a, a, a lot of different reasons. Uh, now it seemed that we we could put things in space. Uh, uh, the, the Soviet Union, who most most Americans had seen as you know some a vast backward nation that you know couldn't really do anything technologically. Uh, you know, they they just you know they 
they thought they were leaps and bounds, you know, ahead of the Soviets. And 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 what Sputnik revealed was that that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, why couldn't you know why wasn't America first? And if the Soviets can do this, what else can they do? So space takes on a again, it takes on a still. It's interesting that we can do it, but it takes on this terrifying dimension that they remembered from World War Two. So I think it's you know it, it is a it is an important moment that changes that changes a lot. But it's uh, you know uh, it's definitely a, a big break. Uh, one just really quickly, you know that it, the the folks who will will probably talk about it in a little bit, you know, Werner von Braun. Uh, became during the 1950s before Sputnik, he really became, uh, you know, the the face of 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 the of of space travel. Uh, he was the you know the, the charismatic uh, German scientist engineer, you know, who comes who who represents that history in Collier's magazines articles that he that he worked on. Uh, but definitely, it came into the public's mind with you know, with, with Disney and the, and the cartoons that were made about what, what space travel would be like. So all of these things are playing out in, in real time. And it's, uh, so the public is watching, the public is interested, but they're probably still very skeptical. Well, that, that's some really fascinating points you touched on. Uh, I think Vaughn especially might be interested in, in how Disney sort of plays into this with, with her, uh, her background. Um, before we go any further, could you just uh, maybe explain to the audience um, sort of post Sputnik, what, what, was that the driver for NASA being created, and and how, how was the sort of perception of the, uh, the Russian space um, program? How how was that playing into sort of um, the, the fears of of the American people, and and also the, the politicians who were maybe pushing for for America to to take action on this? You got it. it, it you know, uh, NASA is really born of that moment. Uh, the International Geophysical Year, which was. Uh, you know, the, the, the background, the scientific background, international scientific background within which these launches of Sputnik and then America's response to Sputnik uh, Explorer 1, you know, that, that kind of plays out as part of this uh, larger project. But from, a, from the political side, Eisenhower, who was, you know, President Eisenhower, mm -hmm. uh, wasn't really that concerned with space. Um, you know, he saw it as, you know, potentially causing more problems than it was worth. Uh, you know, as far as, you know, funding for this. But the other thing that Eisenhower saw as this as this process unfolded was that within America, that the Department of Defense, uh, there were some rivalries that were developing between the Army, Air Force, Navy uh, to see who would who would be the leader uh, of this program. Uh, you know, we always think it's you know, we forget that, you know, the Explorer one. Uh, the, the first attempt at Explorer one was part of the Vanguard program, which was part of the Navy. Uh, it, it had a, it was a miserable failure in the very beginning. It went on to some success, but it was a failure in the, in the beginning. Uh, and it was the army who had stepped in with, uh, the Redstone rocket that launched, uh, Explorer one. So Eisenhower is, is a really shrewd, uh, you know, uh, guy, he, he's seeing this process play out and he says, if I could solve this problem in two different ways, I could, I could divorce it from these rivalries within the department of defense. Uh, and I could also take away some of the uh, the problematic aspects by making it peaceful and making it open to the public, uh, and it would it wouldn't be seen necessarily as a as a secretive organization, and it wouldn't be seen as much of a threat uh, internationally uh, if I create you know if we work to create this this organization that would become NASA. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who is you know he's a Democrat, well Eisenhower is a Republican. Uh, it's it's Lyndon Johnson who really is a really shrewd politician early on here who sees the value, the political value of using 
Sputnik uh, in, in America not being first as, as a way to kind of, you know, politicize it. Uh, mm. He does that. He does that really well. He makes it really public and he creates this narrative that, you know, Eisenhower was asleep at the wheel. Eisenhower is, uh, you know, he's a, he's an old guy. He's, he's, he's a, you know, a fragment of the past and we must move on to you know, embrace technology, embrace the new world. And, and so there, there is a lot of political uh, value of that because again, the public was terrified uh, by Sputnik that, you know, if they can, you know, they didn't know what Sputnik was first off. And then there, this idea that it could be, uh, you know, in the general public's mind that it's, uh, you know, it could be a, a way to launch a nuclear weapon. And, you know, so it, it's, it's really interesting, but uh, it's not hard to see how it gets politicized. But again, Eisenhower is a shrewd politician understands that he can de-escalate the situation by creating a peaceful organization. Uh, and they do that. And, and NASA opens for business shortly thereafter, October the 1st of 1958. So uh, it's, uh... I think one of the things that I find fascinating about this is that we had we had Sputnik in '57 and NASA created in '58, and by '61, President Kennedy was addressing Congress with the goal to landing an American safely on the moon by the end of the decade. Um, that that does seem quite quite a, a vision to to lay upon upon the American people so, so early on. I, I was just wondering how how did the how did the American public react to this this sort of proposal, this grand proposal, and also the, the fact that they were going to have to be paying for it, and, and the, this shift towards a greater increase in public spending under Kennedy, what what were the were the majority of Americans in favor of of spending big in order to to to, to win win this race, as it were, or were they concerned that this was money that was getting taken out of, of the country and being you know put into something which was a um, an exercise that wasn't going to affect the daily lives of people. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. And the, and the answer really is, it, you know, it depends, right? It depends mm -hmm. on what group you're talking to and it depends on what year you're talking to. I think a lot of folks, you know, just generally probably didn't understand the scale of the amount of money that was going to be applied to this. Uh, you know, it, it, it is what Eisenhower had warned about the development of that military industrial complex, you know, that that we would always be in a state of war. We would always be in a state of big federal budgets. Uh, Eisenhower, as a Republican, was a, was opposed to that. Kennedy is is able to embrace that, uh, and it and it really does. You know, one of the ways that Kennedy, you know, he, you know, he gives his speech. You know, and I guess it will will kind of tie it to that is that, you know, when he announces this, uh, Kennedy's getting hammered. You know, he's been president for a very short period of time. Uh, in his first hundred years, or first hundred days in office were, you know, you know, a travesty at every turn almost, uh, you know, and, and it just, he's getting, he's getting killed. Uh, not only, uh, you know, he comes in saying Eisenhower was asleep at the wheel, but let's not forget in April of uh, 61, just after, you know, the first spring of his presidency, uh, Yuri Gagarin's flight, uh, you know, orbital flight from the Soviets and you know, America answers, you know, with a 15 minute suborbital flight, which isn't even nearly what uh, what mm -hmm. Gagarin did, uh, you know, but Kennedy's scrambling and he's asking folks, you know, you know, these things have propaganda value in the in the in the global south. Right. In countries that are becoming independent uh, they're you know, in, in, in Africa, you know, in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and Kennedy sees this technology as, as having a, a heavy value. Uh, of proving out whose system is, you know, will produce the greater results. And you, you go back to Sputnik and then you go to, you know, Gagarin's flight 
and 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 these things are having real world implications for him. So you know, in in when Kennedy gives his, he he reaches out to to the folks at NASA and he says, "How can we beat them? You know, just show me a one way that we can beat them." And that's where he gets the word back that we can go to the moon. Uh, you know, and so he gives this after 15 minutes of, of human spaceflight, American human spaceflight. Uh, Kennedy commits to to go to the moon on on May, his his speech before Congress, uh, joint session there. Uh, May 25th, 1961. Well, when Kennedy gets, you know, after the speech is over, Kennedy's talking to some people about it. And he says, you know, I don't know that I don't know that they thought that was a great idea. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure people were really, uh, uh, really as excited as I thought they'd be. Uh, and he begins to question it. Uh, you know, so Kennedy's he he, he kind of, you know, we always see it as just like, yeah, after that speech, it's, it's guaranteed that he's going to invest this huge amount of money. Uh, and it's going to go in the direction and, and obviously will land on the moon by the end of the decade. Well, Kennedy goes back and forth on this several times. And it's just back to your question. It's it's what you know, he's seeing that he's reading the tea leaves. Right. Is this something that's popular? Uh, is it you know, should we scale it back? Uh, and as he's meeting through over the you know the rest of the years of his uh, presidency before he's unfortunately assassinated, he's you know, he's asking NASA, what are you guys doing? And, and, and can you know. Is this going to happen? Because Kennedy admits, I don't care about space. I'm not a, I'm not an enthusiast of space. I'm not going to do it just for the sake of doing it. This, this has to work because I, we're investing a huge amount of money in it. Now, the other way that Kennedy is able to, to, to kind of couch this spending is he says, look, this isn't spending for no purpose. This is spending in education. We're going to, you know, produce scientists and engineers uh, by investing in, in in secondary education, by investing in university programs, uh, and and we really want people to go down this because I believe that an educated workforce, highly trained, technical, that part for Kennedy was worth the risk. Uh, but you know, and as the over the course of the decade, uh, you know, a, after Kennedy is assassinated, it's uh, the, all of these other issues, right? So when John's President Johnson you know, he, he's uh, looking for, to spend for what he, you know, the, uh, the great society, right? So this huge investment in America and poverty, uh, you know, the civil rights movement had been, a, had been a piece of it, but after the civil rights bill in 64 and the, in the Voting Rights Act of 65, uh, you know, uh, Johnson commits to the great society. But the other thing that's, that's heating up at this point is the Vietnam War. Uh, and so you, it, it just depends on what part of the decade you're talking about, whether the American public thought it was worth it or not. And, and roughly at the end of the decade, you know, it really peaks at the, at the trip mm -hmm. to the moon. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, people are seemingly excited about it. Uh, you know, we've seen, you know, from, from the African-American community that, you know, they, they are one of the loudest groups to protest against this spending because they see, you know, the realities in, you know, in, in, you know, the ghettos of America where, you know, you know, these, just this, uh, perception that, that, you know, for $12 a day, you know, we could feed an astronaut for $8 a day, we could feed a hungry child and, you know, living in, in Harlem, you know, so there, so it just, it really does depend. Uh, and it, and it's, to me, that's one of the most fascinating points, uh, you know, one of the most fascinating, con fascinating contexts of this is, is that perception and whether or not it was worth it. So really so, interesting. So just on that, uh, as a, as a historian, do, do you, do you ever kind of struggle to, um, or do you, do you ever have, have any sort of back and forth in the relationship between the, sort of the time that you're studying when you're looking at something like 
funding uh, a massive government project to send someone to the moon um, as much of a sort of political statement uh, on a global level as it is any as it is a scientific achievement. While at the same time, as you say, there are you know poor black children not having 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 the the foods that will keep them alive. Is there is there any difficulty for, from your own perspective as a historian trying to uh, present you know NASA as this this um, organization which is is trying to do this amazing human achievement while at the same time that is money that's coming directly from the people which is not going to um, directly serve those people who are most in need. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, uh, and, and I think the answer to it is I can give you a, a, an example from my own research. Uh, primarily, I, I, I do look at the social ramifications, you know, culture of of, of space, uh, and particularly, uh, and, I, and, and the example I can give you here is um, when it came to President Kennedy. One of the things that he does early on, and we mentioned that education and, and the focus there. One of the things that Kennedy did early on, even before the commitment to the moon, was he made a commitment to equal employment opportunity. Uh, and he understood that, you know, any invest federal investment has to has to, up, you know, has to uplift all groups. Uh, and he saw definitely when he looked at, you know, an investment in the South. Uh, well, that's that's going to be problematic or, or anywhere across the country, really. But particularly in the South, where there was still Jim Crow segregation uh, and, and what Kennedy's actually does. By utilizing the uh, you know executive order uh, 10.925, which is the most important first uh, big step in equal employment opportunities, he says, look, as we're making this federal investment, and that's what Kennedy wanted to, and he saw this as, as just that, as we're making this investment, that investment is going to change society. Uh, and nowhere was that more evident than with equal employment. And because in a place like Huntsville, Alabama, where Marshall Space Flight Center, where they're building the, you know, they're developing, designing, developing and testing and building the big rockets that's going to take make Kennedy's dream possible. Uh, in the shadows of, of NASA, there was the uh, Alabama A&M University, which was a historically black college and university. Uh, you know, Huntsville was a, definitely a segregated town. Uh, but the, the leadership in the civil rights movement and the leadership uh, particularly with uh, Dr. Richard Morrison, who was president of that university, they understood what Kennedy was doing. They heard him loud and clear, and they understood that new economic opportunities were going to be available to his students. They knew, knew, you know, things that they couldn't have imagined just years before in the South, high-tech, high uh, high-paying technical jobs uh, that, that would be open to them through this legislation. So for Every, for that huge investment that's made in Huntsville, uh, the civil rights leadership here understood that that was a lever to change society. And it was, and they embraced it. They, they used it to, as, as a way to, to bring about desegregation of uh, you know, education, you know, finally implementing the, uh, the intention of uh, Brown versus Board of Education from 1954, the, the you know, Supreme Court case that had ruled that segregation in education was unconstitutional. Uh, because of that in Huntsville, we, we, because of this investment and because of that law can now be put on the books, Kennedy's investment in space changes fundamentally those universities and the, and the economic opportunities that were available. So I think when we, when we think about these, you know, as a historian, when I look at an issue like that, I think, yeah, NASA, you know, that this investment that Kennedy's making 
it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen and it doesn't just benefit one group in, in society. Uh, it doesn't just make the rich richer. Uh, it, it doesn't really create a, you know, a, it, the military industrial complex or the space industrial complex, you know, or, or whatever you might say there with the with the big companies that are benefiting. They're all subject to this equal employment opportunity as well. So, you know, basically just from that perspective, I'd say that's the kind of history that's useful for us because that's the kind of history that, you know, has applications today when we talk about diversity and inclusion at NASA, you know, knowing this history, knowing how, how these institutions were, uh, you know, uh, benefited uh, previously marginalized groups, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a history that can actually be valuable to us. And you've talked about the, the space race um, in the wake of Sputnik. Um, towards the, the end of the, the 50s, the Soviet Union made a lot of you know, um, building their aesthetic around space and um, the success of their, their rockets and Khrushchev and things like that. Do you th uh, think that this increased in the 1960s or did, the, or did that level off and, and the Soviet Union became less of an influence and it was just education and, and science and, and um, maybe American patriotism? You'll have to back up one second there. I think, uh, so are you, you're asking about the, the nature of uh, kind of the existential threat and the impact it has on this, uh, on this process? Yeah, but also yeah. The, the development of the, the Soviet Union's own space program. Earlier yeah. you, you touched on it when you, uh, ref, you referred to Eisenhower, but in the 1960s under Kennedy and, and under Lyndon Johnson, did it become more of an issue or less? You know? that, that's a good question. And that's something that I think we, we really have missed in the past. I think we've, you know, historians have, have generally made it a, a one narrative that, you know, back with Sputnik and with Gagarin's flight, you know, it was, yeah, that was when it was a space race, but the space race effectively ended uh, because the Soviets, you know, kind of fell off in different, for different reasons. Well, we know that's not the case uh, because, you know, in, in, uh, I give you a, I give you a perfect example, right? The the one of the things that NASA does later on after Kennedy's gone, there still is this question that maybe they won't make the end of the decade, uh, you know. And, and so the Saturn V has had some problems uh, all throughout the Saturn V, you know, the combustion instability in the first in the F1 engine, uh, you know. Apollo six, the second flight of a Saturn V was just riddled with problems, uh, and and. Lo and behold, into this process, the, the Soviets launch a, the Zond, you know, mission that, uh, you know, actually flies by. It's an uncrewed mission, but it flies by the, you know, goes goes by the moon. And, and But that vehicle is capable of putting a crew around the moon. Well, that that sends a jolt throughout the system. Uh, and in fact, it, it convinces NASA to say, you know, I know our last launch of a Saturn V, you know, Apollo 6 it was uncrewed and it was it was not great. Uh, we're going to launch Apollo 8 and we're going to put human beings on it and we're going to send them to the moon. So the fact that they did that following a, a, a really, really poor test flight uh, of the Saturn V really does show you that it was still hot. There was still this idea that if the Soviets can do that, if, if they launch a crew around the moon, which is what we did with Apollo 8, uh, you know, to, to stellar success, uh, if they had done that first, what, you know, what ripple effect that would have had, uh, you know, America, you know, the space program right before Apollo 8, uh, you'd had the, 
you know, back in 67, you'd had the death of three astronauts during a ground test uh, for Apollo 1, you know, in a fire that, that, killed, that killed three astronauts there. Uh, you know, the, these continual problems with the technology, uh, the heat up, you know, the things we talked about earlier with, you know, the other priorities. We've got a Vietnam War going on. We've got, you know, uh, social protests, social unrest across the nation. Um, you know, all, all of these things are happening at the same time. Uh, it, so yeah, the, it, the Soviets are still always there. The Soviets are always in the back of the, you know, while they may have, it may have quieted sometime between 61 and 67 or so, uh, it, it really is heating up and, you know, so yeah, they're, they're always there. Yeah, that's great. And I have one more question as well, just in, just around this period, uh, did this become a political issue in the sense that you said that Lyndon Johnson took it on? But in 1960, both Nixon and Go and Rockefeller were talking about a missile gap and brought the 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 failures of of the American space program as part of their campaign. Do you think it was still something that the Democrats were doing really well, or do you think both parties were really seeing this at the time? I, I think they were. Uh, you know, Nixon. You know that you mentioned this idea of a missile gap, right? That was the you know this this idea of why are the Soviets so good at uh, putting things into space and why are the Americans so bad at it? Uh, you know, one of the things one of the things that people forget is that uh, you know America had a lot of where one place America was really really good was miniaturization. So we could, you know, we didn't really need big boosters to launch a nuclear warhead because our nuclear warheads didn't weigh that much. Uh, the Soviets were not good at that. They had they had very heavy nuclear warheads, and so by design, uh, in order to to order to solve that problem, they were building big boosters. So one, you know, as you get closer to, you know, now we're going to go to space. Uh, those big boosters pay off, where the Americans now have to catch up. Uh, but the, you know, whether so the 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 idea is that there was no missile gap. There never was a missile gap. But you're right, politically, uh, you know one side, whether, you know, the, the side out of power at the time, Republicans or Democrats could, uh, you know, could, could use that as, as, as a political, as a political football. Uh, they knew better. Uh, you know, Kennedy knew better. Johnson definitely knew better. Uh, Eisenhower, you know, toward the, he's already been president. He can't be reelected in 1960. He's already been president, you know, for two terms. So he, he's not necessarily that worried about it. Uh, but Nixon, you know, has had been Eisenhower's vice president, uh, you know, uh, and so, you know, he runs against Kennedy in, in uh, 1960 uh, and Kennedy wins based on that idea that, that you, you were just part of the problem. You're, you're, you were there, you should, you know, you, you knew there was a missile gap, None of, you know. Uh, so yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, definitely it's, it's, poli it's politicized. Um, I'd just like to touch on some of the, the military side of it, which you kind of have already touched on a little bit. Uh, in 1962, as part of Kennedy's uh, speech at Rice University, when setting out the, the goal for uh, reaching the moon, um, he said, we have vowed that we shall not um, see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. With that in mind, during the 60s, how closely tied was the military application of rockets to NASA and their mission of space exploration? And how is that reflected in the public perception of NASA, especially since President Kennedy had sort of pushed the, the message of, of peace and human advancement uh, um, around the space exploration of the early 60s? 
Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, the militarization at, well, the military involvement, we, we talked about that a little bit here, you know, when, when in the buildup of who is, you know, what is NASA in the very beginning, uh, what is NASA using uh, as its launch vehicles? Well, if you look at, you know, Alan Shepard's first flight, that Redstone rocket, uh, found, you know, the, the launcher there, that's an army, you know, that was, you know, these Redstone rockets are the same rockets that, uh, you know, that uh, Khrushchev is asking Kennedy to remove from Turkey. Uh, you know, this is that's the same rocket. Um, by the time you get to uh, and it and that had also launched America's first uh, satellite in space. You know, it was a Jupiter C, but really it's just a derivative of the Redstone vehicle. Uh, and so the Mercury launch was the same thing. Uh, you know, and so Mercury. We think about Alan Shepard's suborbital flight, but by the time you get to the the second, basically the second step of of the Mercury program, putting a human into orbit. Uh, that's an Atlas vehicle. So a Mercury Atlas. Atlas launcher was a military weapon designed to launch nuclear weapons. Uh, you can flash forward a bit to the Gemini program. Uh, Gemini was a program NASA developed between Mercury was getting a human in space. Saturn, Saturn program was about putting a human on the moon. Uh, but in between, we had to learn to, you know, to operate in space, to dock, rendezvous, and all these different things. And so that's what Gemini was all about. Uh, the launcher for Gemini, you know, so a Titan II uh, military launch vehicle. So it's very, very important. Uh, but really quickly, what one of the big steps is that in this whole process is the Saturn. Uh, the Saturn rocket was was so large, there was no military use for it. In fact, when it was under the Army's domain, they were about to cancel it. And NASA basically has to convince them to say, you know, please don't cancel that program. We, we really need a, a booster that big. Uh, and so it's, you know, the Saturn, the Saturn one was what that vehicle was. Saturn one, Saturn one B, uh, is the smaller Saturn that we're familiar with there. Uh, and the Saturn five was a rocket that had no military applications for the Saturn five. Uh, so I think that's, that's the vehicle that is, is designed. And, and when the public sees that vehicle, they think, yeah, obviously there's no military uh, presence there. Uh, so I think that that's where it gets divorced just a bit in the Ameri on the American side. Uh, but the problem doesn't go away. And this is kind of a, a, a side note here. But, you know, uh, when they, you know, after the and we'll talk about after maybe maybe in a bit, too. But, uh, you know, after the uh, the Apollo program is coming to a conclusion, you know, Nixon is president. Uh, he's starting to there was an Apollo 18, 19 and 20 that were actually canceled. Uh, you had a lot of leftover hardware. Uh, and, and, and Nixon uh, definitely in the in the throes of lots of different problems at this point. Vietnam being probably the primarily the problem. Uh, he says, you know, I, I can't give you all these other things you're asking for. We, we're not going to go to Mars anytime soon, but I'll give you a space shuttle. And the space shuttle is very interesting in that question that you asked. You know, what's the military relationship here? Because um, what they really wanted the space shuttle to be was this, you know, this workhorse for space. It would provide routine access, uh, you know, 50 to 80 launches of the space shuttles a year. Uh, and they could do all things. They could launch military satellites. They could, it could launch, you know, it would be America's launch vehicle and you wouldn't need those vehicles for, for the, from the department of defense. Well, that put a lot of constraints on the, on the space shuttle program that it, it never really got over. Uh, and so that's problematic. But but I hope that at some point answered your question. <laughs> uh, so the, the next question I had was actually something we, we briefly touched upon, which is 
Werner von Braun, who was uh, a key part of, of NASA. Could you just tell us a little bit about his role um, uh, at NASA and also tell us how the American public perceived him and were they aware of his uh, Nazi past in, in World War II? Yeah, good question. I think, uh, you know, so so definitely, uh, you know, Werner von Braun, he, he's the, the builder of the V2 uh, rocket for Hitler. Uh, he, as a young man, been really fascinated and, and worked with a lot of the, you know, as, as, as a teenager uh, and in his early 20s, uh, working with these groups that were really trying to build a space vehicle, right? They, they wanted to launch a, launch a rocket. Uh, so so uh, the Army comes along, they take that capability, they say, hey, you know, we're going to build this uh, wonder weapon for, for the military uh, that became the V2. Uh, they learned a lot with that system. Uh, you know, obviously at Pinamunda, where they where they the development center and the, the, the testing early on. Uh, and then, you know, obviously it, when it went into production, it was produced uh, using concentration camp labor at uh, Middleburg, uh, Dora Middlebrow uh, concentration camp uh, labor. Uh, so um, at the end of the war, uh, the V2, you know, not really a obviously it wasn't a turning the tide of the war type of a type of a thing, uh, you know, they, they launch, you know, thousands of these things into it the, probably shows up the most in London, uh, late in the war, um, and in, 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 on the continent as well. Uh, but after the war is over as, as the war is coming to an end, actually, uh, from Brown, uh, realizes that, you know, he has something that people are going to want. Uh, and so he uses that as a as a bargaining chip, right? This this knowledge, this experiment experience that they have with this weapon, and they have the hardware. They have the drawings. They have the hardware. Some hardware left over. Uh, it's been hidden in a mountain. You know, it's a, just a wild story in and of itself. Well, they know they don't want to surrender to. He's you know he talks with the group, and who should we surrender to? The the, the Soviets or the Americans? Well, uh, or the British or or French or whomever. Well, they basically decide that their best interest is in surrendering to the Americans. So he does that. Uh, they surrender, and and long story really really short, uh, that that becomes something called uh, you know Project Paperclip or Operation Paperclip, or however you want to describe it. And what that process was about was America securing intellectual reparations uh, as part of this war. Uh, so getting that intellectual capital, those intellectual reparations, uh, you know, and and by possessing it denying it to who they saw already as that war is coming to an end as the as the existential mm. threat of, of com global communism soviet union uh nazism has been defeated the next enemy is likely to be uh the soviet union uh and so they deny it to that enemy so th this process uh you know th so there is a lot of hesitation on the american side truman who's president at this point uh he's very uncomfortable with the idea of bringing over former nazis uh, who had worked building this, these weapons for Hitler. Uh, you know, von Braun had been a, you know, von Braun had been an officer in the, in the SS. Uh, you know, it's kind of careerism. We don't, you know, the other question is, was von Braun an anti-Semite? We really don't see any evidence that he was anti-Semitic, but, but obviously that's, that's, a, you know, <laughs> that's a, anyway. Uh, so Project Paperclip, Truman was a little upset. He, he was uncomfortable with it. He wasn't upset about it. He was uncomfortable with this idea. Uh, he's convinced to go ahead with it, uh, and that's in bringing this, in bringing these folks over. 118 initial Germans are brought over, uh, Van Brown and, and, and 117 of his folks. Uh, but over time, that program doesn't just—it's not just in 1945. It, it lasts up into the into the 1960s to some degree. Thousands of scientists uh, 
doctors, you know, in, in all different fields, physicists, you know, uh, doctors, med medical, uh, all, all over the place. Uh, so anyway, so one of the things that we know about this process is that it was secret. Uh, you know, this documentation with these folks, there was an attempt, uh, the records are open now, you can see their, their project paperclip kind of case files. Uh, and there was investigations into their backgrounds to see how, you know, they, they, they wanted to see if they were ardent Nazis, uh, you know, whether they were very, you know, they were demonstrated anti-Semitism or anything like that, uh, or, you know, responsible for, you know, the horrors of concentration camps. Uh, but unfortunately there was, so there is this connection with Van Brown with the V2 program, right? So, so that it, it, it was, uh, it remained classified. That information really wasn't generally known by the American public uh, mm -hmm. of, of what these folks' past were. Uh, you know, they were card-carrying members of the Nazi party. They were, the investigations into their backgrounds uh, were, were fairly rigorous to some degree uh, because there were examples where they found out people were ardent Nazis and they, they sent them back to, to Europe. Um, so so the, what the American public knew about this really didn't come out in any great detail until well into the, you know, way, way, way into the 1980s, really, is when it mm. became really evident of what had happened. So the American public, they see Von Brown, you know, Von Brown and his team are out in White Sands in Fort Bliss, Texas, White Sands, New Mexico, launching these V2s and continuing to refine these systems. Uh, so that it's really quiet. They come to Huntsville, Alabama in 1950, uh, as the Korean War basically is kicking off. Uh, and that's when they really developed that redstone rocket over these years there for the army. Uh, in, during the 1950s, you know, Van Brown, as we mentioned, he starts to show up kind of gradually. He's, he always loves to give a speech to like local rotary clubs and that sort of thing. And so, you know, there's still some hostility in, in Texas that, you know, Hey, we, we fought against these guys and now here we are, you know, uh, building programs around them. Uh, you don't really see that in Huntsville so much that there's this, you know, these guys were the enemy not long ago. That's that's kind of bad, um, you know, but, but Brown shows up really nationally with those those Collier's magazines. So this Collier's magazine was a magazine that was in, you know, all you know, many households had this type. It's a really kind of a standard magazine with a wide circulation. So these, you know, these articles from Brown is talking about space travel. Uh, you know, they're in his own, you know, he's, he's writing these things. He's talking about what's possible. Uh, and then, you know, he, he comes into folks' home as part of, you know, when Disney, when Walt Disney's building Disneyland, uh, he says, you know, let's, you know, let's, how can we advertise this? You know, so he gets engaged with Van Brown because of these Collier's Magazine articles. And then they have these, these TV programs where, you know, Van Brown is talking about the, what space travel will be. So from the American public standpoint, this is really the first time they've seen him. They didn't know who Van Brown was. Uh, they'd heard about the V2 weapon, obviously, and now they associate him with that. But, you know, now he's on Disney, you know, he's, <laughs> he's coming into their houses. And, and so they said, you know, he's got a funny accent. Uh, he's a real charismatic guy, seems to know what he's talking about. So he kind of becomes the face of, of space travel in America for, for a very long time. And, and actually during the, you know, once NASA's created and he's the, he's the center director at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, but he's the head of the Saturn V, you know, that center is the, is the center that develops the Saturn V that takes us to the moon. So uh, the American public has, you know, decades of experience, you know, thinking about he hearing him talk about space. And, and he really is the sort of the poster child for, for NASA, uh, particularly when it comes to, to these launch vehicles. 
you know, Van Brown, uh, after uh, the, the Apollo program comes to a conclusion, Van Brown returns to, you know, he, he wants that original plan that he had, which was, uh, you know, we kind of refer to that in the history world as the Van Brown paradigm for space travel. Uh, what, he's, what he had laid out originally was, you know, build a shuttle first, get to low Earth orbit first, learn the low Earth, you know, learn that to, to live and work in a microgravity environment in a space station, then you go to the moon, then go to Mars. Van Brown thought the idea that going to directly to the moon and circumventing those other things was a, was a horrible idea. Uh, and so after the Apollo program comes to a conclusion, he says, here's, we need to go back to the original plan uh, you know, and, and to go, you know, go back, go to continue to now to go to low Earth orbit, build a space station and then go to Mars. Uh, and President Nixon at the time says, no, no I'm not going to give you anything but a shuttle. OK, so his plan is kind of done and, and he retires and from NASA and he goes into into private industry and works with with Fairchild and doing all kinds of things there. Uh, but he dies, you know, in 1977, he actually dies of stomach cancer. Uh, so in his life, you know, while he was alive, this idea of the Nazi past really didn't impact him that much. There is a moment in, in right before the moon landing where, you know, in East Germany and, and we kind of, you know, not, not to go totally into too much detail here, but, you know, uh, the Soviets uh, who controlled Eastern Germany at this point, uh, they're kind of using this Nazi past against America saying, you know, look, you guys are, you know, you're, you're sheltering this you know, war criminal or whatever. Uh, and so they, they begin to push it. Uh, and there's, there, there's some efforts there to, to, but, but those, the American public really doesn't see that. Uh, Von Brown actually does, there's a, there's a, uh, war crimes trial where he's, he gives a deposition about what he saw, uh, in, you know, he visited the, you know, while it's being while the while the V2 was being produced, uh, you know, near concentration camp uh, in, in central Germany, uh, Von Braun goes for visits from time to time. He's not there constantly, you know, and he's not in control of that plan or anything like that. But he does visit it multiple, multiple times. Uh, and, and in this deposition in 1969, he basically talks about what he'd seen there. And he's, you know, he says, I hadn't, I didn't witness any, you know, murders or mass murders or anything like that. Uh, and that's, that's kind of his deposition. Uh, so, so throughout his life, while he was alive, the public just saw him as that. They saw him as the guy who invented the, you know, who opened hmm. space up the V2. They saw him as the guy who was, you know, the, the, the guy with the funny accent who was on uh, Disney. Uh, and then they saw him as the head of the Apollo program who made the Saturn V possible. So he does make these, you know, very important contributions to that program, uh, and and it's not really until the 1980s where journalists really begin to dig in and say what what really went on there, uh, and and through things like the Freedom of Information Act, Sunshine Laws, they're able to to get to the records and they go, you know, they really reveal to the public for the first time exactly what this what this process was about, uh, and and one of you know Von Braun's number one uh, you know kind of right hand man here. Uh, Arthur Rudolph, uh, he's still alive and he, he really gets caught up in that. So he becomes kind of the, you know, the, the outlet for, oh, you know, these, these are the, these are the bad guys actually. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so it, it's a, it's a long, it's very long, it, it, you know, <laughs> kind of long story long there, but, but yeah, I think the public just saw him as, as what he was, uh, while he was alive, they saw him as what it was now that what's the legacy today, right? So as a historian, how do you, how do you deal with those things and how do we talk about that and understand it? 
I think we have to, you know, we definitely have to do it from a number one, a, a position of honesty, right? Uh, yes, history says <laughs> history says that this this guy made you know these incredible contributions, uh, you know, but but we also have to recognize that you know uh, he was a part of something that one of the most horrible things you know that happened in in the history of humanity. Not that he's a he's a leader of it or a driver of it, but he's definitely implicated in the system. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in the last 15 minutes or so, there's just a, a few points that I want to go over. And one of them was something you, you, you touched on a little bit, which was um, communication and NASA and Werner von Braun, whoever else, sort of communicating and, and educating the public and, and, and getting a, a message out there about what NASA are doing. You, you mentioned about writing magazines. You mentioned a little bit about Disney. Uh, I'm guessing um, later on, getting um, astronauts out there to, to sort of become potential faces of, of the space program later on. How, how, were, how were NASA attempting to communicate and what was their, you know, different approaches for different audience? You know, were they using Disney cartoons for a younger audience and, you know, interviews with, with, uh, with astronauts for, for the adults? Yeah, that, that's a great, you know, it's a great question. It's a big question. I think, you know, early on, NASA has a very strong public affairs group. Uh, mm -hmm. That is communicating it. And, you know, what Eisenhower really envisioned, right, a, a open line of communication, everything, you know, all of the successes are celebrated. But let's not forget all, all of the uh, accidents were very visible. You know, the, the thing with the Soviet uh, program was that they were very secretive, very closed. Mm -hmm. If an accident happened, you didn't know about it. Uh, you know, if they were falling behind, they weren't communicating that to the public. But they definitely they they definitely understood the value, the propaganda value of a success, though. Right. So so NASA really is it has a strong public affairs and, and to this day still has a strong public affairs where they, you know, very open line of what's happening, communicate that to the public. And so, you, you, you know, what is the face of NASA? So early on, you're you're definitely right. It's putting humans in space. Uh, you know, we, you're not really going to get the general public excited in the 1960s with a lot of you know, uh, it, it, you know, uh, spacecraft observatories looking at the sun or whatever, you know, I mean, it's just not. So how do you get people excited? Well, you get people excited by saying, we're going to take a human being and put them in a space, something we thought that was science fiction, we're going to make that a science fact. And so, you know, as you pointed out, the astronauts become a very visible piece of that, that conversation. Uh, these are the, are, the, are the folks we're going to put in space. Now, again, as a social historian, looking back, who were those men? Well, they all basically were, you know, almost carbon copy images of each other. Yeah, they're, they're you know, they're taking great risk. And so they, they, they're very cool, calm, collective. And then we think about Neil Armstrong as he's landing on the moon, right? And just how, how calm and collective he had to be to, to do what he was doing. But, you know, the Mercury 7, these first astronauts that are selected, you know, white, male, Protestant, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you just go down the list, right? Uh, in fact, they were so, you know, the, the, one of the, one of the inside jokes is that uh, if you see the Mercury seven, you'll always note that they're standing in alphabetical order. And that was just so they could tell them apart, you know, and, and they, they could communicate that in a picture. <laughs> so it's, but, you know, and so there, there are these other pieces, right? So, you know, we talk about uh, the African-American community looking to NASA, you know, as, as something that's, you know, uh, what are the opportunities that I might have there? Well, they don't see, you know, the, you know, they don't see themselves represented in the space uh, in the astronaut corps, which is the most visible piece of NASA. So is there a place for me there? Uh, and, and there are a lot of stories associated with that. And it's not until, you know, 1978 with the first uh, astronaut class 
that you do finally get that diversity in, in the astronaut corps where you see women for the first time. Uh, you see African-Americans African -Americans for the first time. You know, so it's it's just, you know, it, it, yeah. And, and so NASA is always communicating that, uh, you know, it, today we think about how, you know, NASA communicates itself. NASA is kind of written in the, it's, it's kind of etched in the, in, in, in the American culture. Uh, you know, if you want to look like a smart person, you know, you have a NASA t-shirt and that's, that's the signal that says something about you, right? So you, you can't ask for anything better than that. Uh, when we see movies, uh, you know, uh, Interstellar, all of these great movies and uh, The Martian, you know, you, you see NASA represented in that as NASA's making the hard things possible. Uh, you know, so NASA's always communicating that. I think the other thing that's communicated from NASA with this uh, with making, you know, this, in, this association with intelligence is uh, the returns from the, these great observatories now, like uh, Hubble and Chandra with, you know, X-ray astronomy and today the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, you know, people get excited about seeing that. We're, we're learning about the creation of the universe. And so I think from a public affairs stance, you know, NASA has always used that as a way to show the benefits of space. Uh, and how it does, you know, it, it, it's helping us understand our world and beyond. Uh, we're learning to become a interplanetary species. It, you know, you know, it's uh, uh, we're gonna, you know, the Artemis program that's, you know, that we're launching, trying to launch the uh, space launch system from Florida now as part of that. Uh, it gets people excited. So I think it's, uh, I, I think that NASA does a really good job communicating, and and, and the American public is really receptive to it. So before we finish up, I would just like to sort of touch upon what kind of comes after the moon landing. So obviously that, that's the summer of 1969, and that, that's one of the, the biggest events in, in human history. Uh, once that took place and, and after that achievement had happened, how, how did things kind of recalibrate for NASA, uh, both from a mission success point of view and, and also sort of from the public, what they were expecting next? Was there a sense of that was the job done, and now we're we the public is sort of moving on to something else? How, how did how did NASA sort of um, recalibrate from there? And then yeah, and then yeah. So that would be the first question, and the second one was how did things things change in the seventies when you've kind of got like the financial crunch off the seventies, and how how did that impact NASA when it was I suppose at a sort of the second point in its life now after it done the moon landing. Yeah, it, it, great, great question. It's, uh, it, it's, I think NASA really understood that it was going to be hard to recreate the excitement of landing humans on the moon. Uh, I, I think then they settle in and say, what, what would a well-balanced space program look like? You know, balancing human spaceflight uh, with, with, you know, scientific discovery. Uh, but also going back to this idea of what the plan was from the beginning, which was that space shuttle, right? So Nixon, as we, as we mentioned, Nixon says, I don't have the money to give you everything, but I can give you, I can give you the space shuttle. And what that shuttle does is it, it open, it does eventually open up low earth orbit, uh, you know, to, for us to learn in the microgravity environment. Now we'd had Skylab, uh, which was America's first kind of laboratory or, you know, orbital workshop in space. Uh, in 1973, 74. Uh, and then in 1975, there was the big, you know, kind of the handshake in space between the Soviets and the Americans with the Apollo Soyuz test project. Uh, but in, in, in the background, the shuttle program is getting developed, but you're right, you can't commit the type of funding, 
you know, that you had committed to, to Apollo, you're just not going to do that for the space shuttle. And so there are delays, there are challenges, there are compromises that are made. Uh, but ultimately that, you know, those 135 missions that the space shuttle between, you know, its first launch in 1981 up into, you know, its, its, its close closure in 2011, uh, you know, the, there's the building of the International Space Station. Uh, so all, all of those things are, are, are incredibly important to remember. Uh, you know, it's kind of what NASA is doing in the aftermath. It, it begins the building of the Hubble, what will be the Hubble Space Telescope. So it turns again to that, again, think that balanced portfolio. What, how do we balance all of these missions that we're trying to look at? Uh, eventually there's, there's the, you know, communications. So launching communication satellites, there's the looking back at Earth. So all the planetary science, right? Voyager, you know, the Viking mission that lands on, on Mars, you know, understanding planetary science. Uh, so the science portfolio really steps up in the aftermath of, of Apollo because that's something we can, that's something new. You know, landing a, landing on Mars is, is incredibly important. Uh, you know, getting to the outer planets, uh, seeing Saturn and Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune and, you know, and poor old Pluto, you know, seeing those things for the first time up close, you know, that's something that's taken, taken a long time to do. Uh, the second part of your question, though, I think is is just as just as vital. How do things change over time? Well, if that's the approach you're going to take, and there's going to be limited funding available, and you've got to balance, and you've got to set realistic expectations, what are the other pieces of that? And I think what you do begin to see, even under President Carter, is you see the idea of commercialization, right? So. Uh, we hear that term now and we associate it with like SpaceX and Blue Origin and all these, you know, thousands of companies seemingly that have a role in the space program. Uh, you know, but, but this idea that, you know, maybe there are things that the industry can do on their own that NASA no longer has to do. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, are there services that America can buy from these companies? And so that process really is, is born of that, of those decisions. Uh, you know, Reagan, you know, Kennedy, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, President Carter actually kicks it off in a, in a pretty fundamental way, but really it's Ronald Reagan, you know, the, the Republican who says, you know, small government, uh, let's turn something over to industry as much as we can. Uh, and, and you kind of see that born in the 1980s. So, you know, and, and we're still, you know, obviously dealing with that, but the, the other pieces, you know, as we move further along, I, I mentioned in 1975, America and the Soviet Union, you know, rendezvous and dock in space and shake hands and, and share, you know, a moment of cultural exchange. And, and so that, to me, 1975 is a high watermark for international uh, participation. Uh, now, America and, and the Soviets wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be enemies in space. They would be cooperating in space. And, and so we see the decline of that militarization of space. Maybe space isn't going to be, you know, a Star Wars situation. Well, uh, unfortunately, that doesn't that didn't last, you know. And so, in, in you know, uh, President Reagan's time, we see the the legitimate, you know, birth of Star Wars, right? You know, so this this program that's going to uh, defend, uh, you know, an umbrella system that will stop nuclear weapons, uh, it was really uh, really kind of out there. But uh, but with the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, we 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 see the the birth of one of the most amazing things that, that space has ever seen, the International Space Station. So joint mm -hmm. cooperation there, uh, you know, and it's not just America and Russia at that point. It's, you know, Canada, Japan, the European Space Agency, you know, all doing this stuff hand in hand. And, and this international science, uh, scientists from around the world are participating in this. And for 
over two decades now, you know, we've had humanity living continuously in low Earth orbit, which is which is amazing. You know, so that's to me, that's that's one of the bigger benefits of this, uh, you know, this balanced portfolio, bring in partnerships, both commercial partners and uh, and international partners. We, we're seeing that today with the Artemis program where, you know, commercial space, uh, you know, we see SpaceX, who, who is basically uh, a launch service for for low Earth orbit now. Uh, America has kind of, you know, the, the federal government has kind of ceded that uh, that ground to industry almost completely is buying that as a service. Artemis is about doing the things that only government will do, right? Go go to the moon and beyond. Uh, go to, you know, Artemis will, will land the first uh, the first person of color, the first woman uh, on the moon, uh, hopefully very soon. Uh, within, you know, definitely within within the scope of a small period of time here, uh, and then go on to Mars. And so, you know, that's being done with commercials with commercial partnerships, but it's also being done with international partnerships. The Artemis mm-hmm. Accords are, are a piece of that, right? So the European Space Agency is building the, the capsule. We think back to, you know, the capsule uh, splashdown in the, in, the, in the ocean there uh, as part of the Apollo program. Well, that piece is actually being contributed internationally, uh, you know, from European Space Agency. So there's a lot, you know, things have changed a lot over the years, uh, obviously. Well, Brian, but that, Brian uh, one last question. If I, yeah, sure. So um, do you think that space is able to generate the same enthusiasm that it did in, say, 68? Because in Nixon's inaugural, he talks about growing wide the horizons of space. We've discovered new horizons. And going to space, we can go to space together. So the, the things you've said, you know, how space had improved technology on Earth and how space has brought uh, the Soviets and America together in space. But do you think today, space could generate the same kinds of enthusiasm that it did back then, especially because like scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson have really talked about how uh, it makes them feel sort of sad that not so much government investment is being made. I know some private sector investment is being made and there isn't the kind of enthusiasm that's capturing young people into science that there was in 68 when, when Nixon wrote that. Yeah, I, I think I agree that, you know, that it is it is hard to recreate the, the excitement of Apollo 11. You, you're, you may never see that again until you have human beings on Mars. I think really that's the goal right now is, you know, to go to go back to the moon is going to be incredibly interesting. And, and definitely humanity is going to get, you know, if we have a situation, which we should, where we're living sustainably, you know, just, just the Apollo program was about a, it was a transportation paradigm, right? We're going to go from here to there and back. Uh, that's not what Artemis is about, right? It's about being on the moon on a continual basis, being able to be sustainable there. I think that's going to be something that people are really going to, you know, the space station is is incredibly important, but if you have humans living on another, on another heavenly body, that's, that's going to definitely get attention. But then when you move from spring from there to the, uh, to Mars, you know, which is going to be incredibly challenging, uh, it, it's going to, you know, that's going to get people's attention, you know, so the human space flight side is, is always going to get the attention. Uh, but we shouldn't forget about, you know, the, the other side, which is the, you know, the, uh, scientific discovery with, as I mentioned, these images of, you know, looking back in time and understanding what happens, you know, 300 million years after the Big Bang, right? Uh, that's that's pretty radical and that gets people's attention. Uh, landing a rover on Mars, you know, perseverance and, and, and trying to find, you know, the, 
all of these things get attention. But the, the thing is now we're dealing with a different context though, right? Because Apollo could do things quickly because it made this huge focus, targeted investment in doing one thing. Uh, now what the agency is being asked to do is to do have a, a strategic plan, you know, a long-term uh, gradual program that's, that, that, you know, takes time. And sometimes, you know, within those windows, people think, you know, nothing's happening, but behind the scenes, I can tell you a lot is happening. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the public only sees the big successes and that's fine. That that's expected. And those successes take a long time, but I think we, we can clearly say that the investment is still worth it because of, you know, the value that we see in STEM education uh, and how, you know, people still get really excited on their first day working at NASA as an engineer or working for a contractor who's working on something for NASA or going into space. Uh, and so when you're a, you know, a, a you know, seventh grade uh, young lady and you're, you know, you're thinking, okay, what am I going to do in my life? And, and somehow that inspires you to make the hard decisions to go into STEM education, you know, to do the, higher level maths and the physics and the, you know, the chemistry and all of these different things that, that you don't have to do, but you challenge yourself. Well, that takes you back to what Kennedy thought in the very beginning when he, when he started this whole thing and, you know, not, not NASA, but when he's, when he dedicated to the Apollo program, that was the thing that he wanted to do. He wanted to create a, a, you know, a, a mechanism, a, a, a body that would, that would, make that possible, that we could make that investment and get people excited. And we would have a, a, a highly trained technical workforce that can do, you know, there's no end of what, 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 what that can do. Right. So, yeah, I think, you know, we all, we always do have these, you know, uh, hurry up and wait, right. <laughs> you know, we're going to, we're going to go to the moon and it's going to take a minute. Uh, okay. Well, if we're not going to the moon today, why are we going? And then there's this idea, we've already been to the moon. Why are we going back to the moon? Uh, you know, couldn't we do something else with that, that money? Well, well, that just misses the point, right? <laughs> it misses the whole foundational in infrastructure, uh, education investment that these, that these programs represent. So. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the, there is always going to be a debate about how we spend money and, and how, how humanity sort of, prioritizes things but I, I can only speak for myself and you know I'm, I'm a, a, a huge um, a huge lover of space exploration so it's been an absolute joy speaking to you today Brian I've, I really enjoyed it hey no thank you this has been great I mean and the other piece just to just to go back really quickly though is you know this investment what we you know NASA is always we're always thinking about going into space right but one of the th beauties of being in space is you can look back at earth uh, and with the Earth Science Program that NASA has and understanding, you know, how the climate is changing, understanding, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, being able to give people, at a, you know, and again, to go back to the global south, be able to put data into people's hands so they can make real time decisions about agriculture, you know, food production, uh, water, uh, you know, water clarity, uh, you, you know, and, and make long term decisions about about those needs. You know, that's something that a platform that NASA has provided to that, you know, and, and is an infrastructure that's in place because of these investments that we make, you know, so it, it helps us in, in, in more ways than, than we know. But uh, but yeah, Simon, this has been great. I really have enjoyed talking to you. Uh, always get always get excited about talking about NASA history. So uh, thank you for the yeah. opportunity. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, it must be very exciting to to 
to, to, to sort of be involved in an institution that's um, done things. I mean, even, even I was just telling my colleagues earlier, you know, something like the blue marble image, which is just such a, such a for, for me, such a sort of key image of the 20th century. And uh, to sort of be able to study that must be, it must be fascinating. Um, Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. I've been hugely enjoyable. I could talk to you for, for hours, but we'll, we'll let you go now. So um, thanks again and uh, all the best. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. From from Brian, from Vaughn, from Toby and myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye.